This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time in one way or another. We seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Carlos Allende, author of the novel Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love. In American culture, there's an adoration of the hero and and the good guys and all that. And uh, in Mexican culture, it's more like tragedy and defenseless and uh, we're never going to get out of this hole, etc., We'll be back with Carlos Allende after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest. There is so much free content out there, and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. 
The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative and on to the show. My guest today is Carlos Allende, a media psychology scholar and a writer of fiction. His novels include Cuadrillas y Contradanzas, Love or the Witches of Windward Circle, and Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love. He developed the course The Psychology of Compelling Storytelling, which is based on his research on narrative persuasion and audience engagement. He teaches at the Writers Program at UCLA Extension. He lives in Santa Monica with his husband. His new novel, Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love, is set in Los Angeles a year before same-sex marriage became legal. The novel follows the misadventures of two gay men, Jignesh Amin, an overweight Indian-American who is working as a bookkeeper, and Charlie Hayworth, a socially inept white guy from Kentucky. After Jignesh murders the beautiful office intern because she insults his writing, and Charlie starts dating Jignesh because he wrongly believes he's rich, the two men embark on a madcap journey that includes a few other deaths, a money laundering scheme, a gay cruise, and a partially doomed trip to Los Cabos, Mexico. We began the discussion with Carlos Allende sharing his journey with literature and writing. Well, I always loved to uh, tell stories and uh, read stories, and I wanted to be a writer ever since I remember. Uh, but uh, but I assumed that uh, there was no money in that, so my background is in economics and finance. And uh, and I also like psychology. I, I I guess I I in one time I bought at an airport a copy of uh, How the Mind Works by Steven Pinker, and I was in my late twenties. I was living in Mexico still. Then I moved to LA and continued writing. And everybody told me that I wrote well, but I wanted to sell a lot of books. I wanted to figure out how to make a story more engaging. And uh, then uh, I learned about the program in media psychology. Uh, so media psychology studies how media affects the mind and behavior. And I wonder if that could be the answer of how to make a story more engaging, to study how how stories, uh, what happens inside the brain when you are transported by a story. So, so I made that the focus of my research. And uh, and that's what I teach now. I I think I found, uh, well, not, not the formula, but... Uh, uh, a model that explains the mechanisms, what, how to engage, how to capture and retain uh, the reader's attention, and uh, what happens inside your brain when when you are engaged by a story and you cannot stop reading or watching a movie or listening to one or playing a video game. The uh, the I like to make 
an analogy constantly between playing a game and, and reading an engaging story because they're very similar. Part of the program is to understand how to uh, engage audiences, but you make your own path. And that's, that's what I did. And that's what I'm teaching now. I'm teaching a, a psychology class for writers. I'm teaching them how to, uh, how to engage, how to make more engaging stories. So what about story in your life? Like, did you grow up being captivated by stories? Did you come from a family of storytellers? What brought you to be interested in that to begin with? Yeah, there was, there were always, uh, there was always reading material in my house, uh, but not really for children. <laughs> I guess my mom, my mom didn't really care much about buying children books for us, uh, but there were always books in the house and there were always uh, comic books too. Being Mexican, we watched a lot of telenovelas. Yeah, they're cheesy and they're uh, dumb sometimes, but they're very, very engaging and very uh, addictive. So yeah, I was always surrounded by, by that. And I always liked drama. I always liked the uh, tragedy and uh, over the top stories. There was a, uh, I don't know if to call it a comic book, uh, a magazine called uh, Lágrimas, Risas y Amor. means tears, laughter, and love. And it was these all over-the-top stories set all over the world. They were like a, like a telenovela in comic form. And many of those stories were transformed to telenovelas. And, and we consumed that. And uh, they were really a window to the world uh, back in the days where, when we didn't have internet and uh, uh, American influence wasn't as big on uh, Mexican culture as it is now. I mean, this is back in the early 80s, maybe, I mean, I started in the late 70s, reading that, and uh, so I was a little child. Yeah, I guess that, that's what got me excited. And then I discovered the classics and, and reading that. So I didn't really read much children, uh, many children books until I was an adult. And uh, so my approach was different. And uh, I guess uh, Mexican culture, uh, we just love tragedy and darkness and uh, very different from, I mean, in, in American culture, uh, there's an adoration of the hero and, and the good guys and all that and that. Uh, in Mexican culture is more like tragedy and defenseless and uh, we're no, never going to get out of this hole, etc. So I want to get to your novel in a minute, but I think lots of people would probably feel like you have the key to the Holy Grail if you know and you're teaching classes about what makes narratives compelling. So what are kind of the top things that you share that your students have their sort of aha moments around? Well, the first one would be to uh, make an analogy between games and stories, because uh, it's a goal-directed activity, reading a story. You do it to change your mood. And if a story is not being su successful in changing your mood and making you happier or relieve boredom or provide you meaning, etc., you abandon them. So that's your main goal. Games have a mission, uh, a goal that you have to accept, a series of challenges and rules that you have to uh, uh, abide by to enjoy the game. And uh, the, the limitations set by the rules is what make the, the game more interesting and what makes you think, etc. And the stories uh, follow a, a very similar structure. They have goals imposed by, by the needs of a character 
They have a series of challenges in all the conflict, and they have rules that uh, a lot of writers are not aware of their rules, but they always are. And they define the tone of the story. I mean, whether it's science fiction, fantasy, or et cetera, where it's said, what could happen. And, uh, and that those rules allow the readers to make predictions of what is possible, what could happen, and, and what could not happen. And we tend to say that the best stories are the ones that are unpredictable. But in reality, most of what we uh, most of what the story contains should be predictable. It's only the interesting twists and turns that should be unpredictable. But you should be you you start speculating, and that specul uh, those speculative thoughts inside your head while you're reading the story are, are, are part of what it makes it more engaging. So you know, oh, this is going to happen, and some uh, many times it happens, some other times it doesn't happen. You make a, a, a an adjustment in your predictions, and you keep uh, creating a model. I call it. Uh, I make the difference between a narrative as as a mental model that you're creating inside your head and a story as what the storyteller is telling you. And uh, so you're constantly modifying your mental narrative, trying to make predictions, getting what is in the story. And if it doesn't, some, if, if something doesn't fit, then you reject it. So goals, challenges, and rules are the three main elements of engagement. And then I would say we don't accept goals at random. We, we're not going to follow a character just because they have a goal. If I tell you that this story is about a rich man that wants to become richer, he's just going to work hard and smile to his customers and be always on time. That's going to be a very, very boring story. So what we need is some uh, distress in there because compassion, uh, it's a very strong force that impels us to pay attention and to care about the other. And uh, that is a mammal instinct that we share, well, not only with mammals, but all social animals, that uh, <clears throat> need to attend and to help others in distress. So to make your story compelling, uh, what I advise my students is always, always, always make the need or the distress of your main character pretty evident. Uh, don't forget to tell us what is his or her affective state, because that's what's going to make us feel compassion. That's going to that's gonna make us feel sorry for, for these characters, pay attention and care about them and their goals. So I would say that that's basically the, uh, in, an, in a, what you call a nutshell, what you should do to make a story more compelling. So in a way, I think what you're saying also is that the readers do not go in with some Buddhist non-attached attitude to reading, that they are players in this game and they can't, in a way, they can't really just let unfold the story as it will because they are always in their mind making up stakes or places they want the book to go and then it either rewards them or, or doesn't because of where the book yeah. goes. Yeah. If the reader is not emotionally involved, then the reader is not engaged and the reader should uh, abandon the story. Uh, I mean, and you can see that when you're reading a scientific text that you don't care 
much about, you get bored and you abandon it. But if you care about the subject and you're finding what you're expecting to find and a confirmation of your hypothesis or maybe uh, uh, what do you call it, a disproval of what you believe, then it becomes more interesting. If it causes an emotional response on you, then you're going to be more, more interested. So you gotta you gotta shock people, you gotta surprise them, you gotta you gotta make them work. Was that on the top of your mind when you created coffee shopping murder love? And I ask this because I think there's a part of writing that is unconscious, at least in the first draft. Uh-huh. So how did you take all of this theory and put it into the, your book? Well, it was uh plan from the very beginning. And what I wanted to disprove is, (laughs) this is very arrogant of me to say this, but uh, what I wanted to disprove is a theory called affective dispositions theory uh, uh, that basically proposes that we enjoy stories where we like uh, good things happen to characters we like, bad things happen to characters we dislike, and we decide who we like based on the morality of their actions. And I say, if that is not the complete truth, it's somewhat true, but not really, because we enjoy tragedies where bad things happen to characters we like, and, and many times very good things happen to characters we dislike. And then many times we follow the anti-hero or even immoral characters and we care for them. So it's not that the, that our affective dispositions sometimes apply and sometimes don't. And what I propose is that you like, you decide who you like based on how they make you feel. It's a very selfish and subjective uh, decision. So if the characters are horrible, but they make you laugh, you're going to enjoy their company. Maybe they are not people that you would love to hang out with, but there are people you are willing to invest your time uh, in because because they're making you feel better. And if you feel compassion about an immoral character, then you're going to care about that character. And uh, so that was by design. I, I, I decided to make the characters as immoral and, and uh, uh, selfish and um, mean as possible, but I still wanted uh, the readers to, to like them. And of course, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I just started on, on I guess, of unconsciously. But I, but I, I was always aware that I had to make the um, the affective state of the characters clear at all time. So the distress of Jignesh and the distress of Charlie should be evident at all times. How they feel, uh, what are they thinking, and what is the meaning of that thinking? Um, many times, uh, writers leave to the reader to decide whether something is good or bad. And if it's very, very obvious, like, I mean, you just killed someone, then that's going to make you very stressed, of course. If it's very, very obvious, maybe you don't need to say it, but many times it's not that obvious. So it is better to say, oh, that made him feel sad or that made, uh, that made him uh, feel angry, etc." So always... Uh, make sure that the, the the effective state of the characters is clear. Yeah, I want to talk about the humor because I think that's an X factor kind of in your theory uh-huh. here. So, but first let's just talk a little bit. So in general, coffee shopping murder love 
is about two characters and it takes place over several weeks. It it doesn't uh-huh. it, it doesn't have a large time span and you switch points of view between the two main characters, which you mentioned, Charlie and Jignesh. So basically what happens is they meet on a dating app and Charlie is um, a white boy from the South. He's from Kentucky. He loves shopping. He just wants love. He is in a job where he's not making much money and he loves fashion and he loves spending way above his pay grade. He spends Uh a lot of money and he's just very needy maybe a little princess-like. Yes, very much. And Jignesh is the opposite. And both of them represent uh, the concept of very, very exaggerated, very cartoony, if you want, extremes of the consequences of living a life of uh, bullying, uh, constant bullying and abuse. But because they're they live different circumstances and, and they're physically very different. Uh, they adopt different uh, ways to cope with pain. So Charlie is small and he's pretty and he is white and he uh, his family was, I guess, I mean, I don't specify that, but a middle class. He's poor right now, but he didn't uh, suffer abject poverty growing up. Anyhow, so because he's a small, he's clingy. So he's waiting for Prince Charming to come and rescue him. And so he's always trying to please others, but at the same time, he's too focused on himself to, uh, to worry about others. And uh, so uh, in psychological terms, I would say that he has uh, insecure attachment and he ambivalent insecure attachment. While Jignesh, He's big and strong, and he's not that attractive. He's always fighting. He's always angry uh, because he's being constantly uh, rejected. So he cannot wait for a Prince Charming because he's aware that that Prince Charming will never come. So he's bitter, he's angry, and uh, he's himself a bully. So these two very different characters meet, and they end up working together and as establishing a relationship together. So Jignesh becomes the prince that uh, Charlie was waiting. And I guess uh, Charlie becomes uh, the loving figure that Jignesh needed. Yes, except their relationship is very duplicitous for both of them. Yeah. So Jignesh is, um, as you mentioned, he's Indian American. He's overweight. He, he really isn't interested in dating Charlie and probably never would have seen him again, except he kind mm-hmm. of accidentally sort of murdered his coworker. And, uh, Charlie was selling a big freezer and he wanted to stash the body in the freezer and that brought them back together. And Jignesh works for, um, an LA firm that rents condos. So they always have cash coming in and he's the CFO. So he has access to all the money and he's playing with it on the side, trying to make more in the stock market. So his bank account, Charlie 
uh, goes on his phone and looks and thinks that Jignesh has all this money, but it's really not his. And so Jignesh is using Charlie for the freezer. Charlie's using Jignesh as for the for the money. And somewhere along the line, they just it gets more and more complicated as the body yes. counts. <laughs> the body count increases. Their desire to shop maybe increases. The um, risks they're taking with the money increases. So I want to go back to what you were saying about how they're maybe loathsome people and they're not necessarily characters people would like. But when you do add the humor element, it changes everything. I mean, if you wrote this like a flat out drama, it might be that people wouldn't turn the page. So what what do you think that factor is that humor brings to everything? So it reduces fatigue. When you're reading about people having problems, that provokes some uh, vicarious distress in you. And you're stressed and stressed and stressed. And especially if you don't like these characters very much, because yeah, they're, they do horrible things, they're selfish. You may not like them very much. But every time you laugh, it's like a relief. And uh, you feel good. And it's a little reward that I give the reader for their loyal loyalty let's put it that way and uh so they keep reading and reading and reading and and you start predicting okay i'm going to be rewarded in the next paragraph and in the next page and there's something here and etc and also uh it just it just reduces fatigue and and keeps you going it's like taking a little rest i think these characters though at the same time are both so incredibly lonely So talking about Mm -hmm. that compassion or empathy, they're not malicious. It's true that they're embezzling money and taking advantage (laughs) of people and stealing and killing and hiding and lying to government officials, but they're, they're actually not bad people. And so I think like for, for me, one of the things about both of them was how lonely they are. So I wanted yes. to ask you about loneliness and writing loneliness and why it was important that they were lonely. It's a book uh, about two gay men from the last generation before a marriage became legal. And things have changed a lot in this country and all over the world. Uh, maybe not everywhere, but uh, they're changing. Things aren't perfect yet, but they're way better than they used to be. Uh, just 20 years ago. And uh, so Jignesh and Charlie grew up without the internet and they were born in a time in which they didn't have any hope to ever getting married and uh, or not even thinking about uh, a stated relationship. And uh, I mean, uh, queer people of my my generation, their 40s and, 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 and older, they will remember what it felt like, like not knowing that even if, if you were normal, if there were other people like you, etc., that was a slow process of discovery. So my generation got to know the internet and things changed. And um, I mean, things have been changing since since the 60s, I mean, or maybe since ever, but but the internet accelerated all these changes. And now they are the story set in, in 2012 and uh, is set just before marriage became legal. And at one point, I compare what it 
means to have grown in that generation and what it means to grow in the uh, uh, new generations, millennials and Generation Z. And uh, they don't have a perfect life, queer people, but they have a lot of things that we didn't. They can, they, if they come out of the closet early, they have support from teachers and, and schools. They have the support from their parents. Uh, they can find the internet, et cetera. So going back to your original question, uh, Jignesh and Charlie grew up feeling very, very lonely and disconnected. And they learned different ways to cope with that. Jignesh's ways to dismiss everyone else and think that everyone else is an idiot and have his own little private fantasy that he doesn't share with others. While Charlie is waiting to be rescued and... Uh, uh, use objects, uh, brands, and, and and commercial things to to please himself. I mean, he has a a large collection of shampoos and creams and stuff that he he has to make himself happy, but they don't make him happy, and that's that's very disappointing. He has a lot of trouble dating because everybody ends up rejecting him because he's so clingy and needy, and his voice is awful. Yeah, they don't want to be lonely. But they grew up lonely and they didn't learn how to be nice to others or how to uh, love others. I think that we all are born with the need to be loved, but loving others is something that we learn as children. And and that is uh, something that you learn from your parents. When you don't have secure attachment, then then, uh, that uh, with your parents, that determines all of your relationships in, in the future. And both of them were, I wouldn't say horrible childhood, but they had difficult childhoods and they have a, a lot of problems relating to others. And, uh, and that's why they're lonely. They have that need to connect. They just don't know how to satisfy it. I wanted to ask you a little bit about pacing. Given what you're saying about almost like game, you know, some game theory and and mm-hmm. how our minds want to predict and then if we're wrong or right you you can't probably and you didn't but you can't write a book that just has sort of caper after caper after caper after caper and this is a comedy and they are uh-huh. in in many senses they're you know it's them versus the law so uh-huh. how do you take all these things that you're saying about narrative psychology and know when to like sort of put a pause on certain areas of the plot or when it's time to change or or when it's even time to end. I wrote this uh, novel in a workshop and I didn't have much time and I was working full time and uh, going to school what I did, I started writing the scenes that I would like to to have and not worry about connecting them. So, you know, when you're planning your novel, you have all these vague ideas floating in your head. And uh, But normally what we do is try to outline and connect the dots and et cetera. So I work with that, those vague ideas. First of all, I, I, I uh, decided how I wanted my readers to react and what I wanted them to feel about the characters. And that one was planned from the very beginning. But then uh, I just started writing scenes, not worrying about how to connect them. And uh, many times the scene (laughs) ended when I ran out of time 
other times uh, ended when after editing them several times, I said, okay, this is too long or too short, et cetera. And, uh, and then I worried about connecting them together. And I realized that connecting them together was so much easier. Uh, I started calling that stitching uh, from the uh, term that they use in, in uh, virtual reality when they connect scenes in the camera. So I just uh, wrote what I wanted to see and then stitched those together with just a few words. I mean, there's a part in which Charlie and Jignesh end up uh, living together. So you see them having uh, a date. And then the next thing you know, uh, Jignesh has been living in that house for like three months. And uh, I just give enough cues to the reader to know what will happen. Oh, yeah, they're going to move in together. So the next chapter is three months later. We don't need to see what happened during those three months because it will be boring. So I don't try to dramatize it. I don't try to connect it. I just stitch it, uh, put it together. I had based, uh, I had uh, set the rules of how my story was going to be told from the perspective of these two characters, and each chapter was going to be told by a different character. And because they don't know what the other character is going through or thinking, the reader ends up knowing much more information than the two characters, because. They're not reading the novel. You, you are reading the novel. So you know what Jinesh is thinking and you know what Charlie's thinking, but they don't know. And uh, so uh, it, it was limiting, but it was easy just to abide by the rule. And uh, many uh, there's, a, there's a chapter that is just one page when it was uh, Jignesh's turn. There are some chapters that are very long. They're like 30 pages. I just needed to respect the rule and and then go on with the story. I needed to do something that uh, that Charlie couldn't have seen, so it was Jignesh's time to, to tell it, and then we can go back to Charlie. How does setting fit into uh-huh. your narrative persuasion and audience engagement theory? We're creating a narrative using cues from the storyteller, but our narrative is going to be fed from information that we would know about the subject or stuff. And it's a thing that I call that loading the cassette. So you just need to give a few cues to, to your reader and your reader already has a lot of information in long-term memory. So they load the cassette. Okay. This story is set in Los Angeles. So I load the uh, uh, Los Angeles cassette and I will understand the story or this story is set in New York. The problem is when we, uh, when you set the story in a in an unknown place, that's when you have to give a lot of information. Okay, so this story is set in Azerbaijan, for instance, and well, you know that Azerbaijan is in Central Asia, but maybe that's all you know. I mean, I don't know, and I, I don't know anything about that country. Uh, uh, was it a Soviet republic before? Are they are they Muslim people? So you load all that information. And you try to create that narrative with LA is very easy because we have seen a lot of LA in the movies. Or I just assume that everybody knows what LA is like. Cities like New York, Paris, London, we have seen them in, in the movies and, and, and in books all the time. So we have a lot of information and it's easy to load that cassette and, and have the readers create a narrative with a lot of information they already possess. I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of people will get their references or at least get a vague idea of 
or what it is like to live in LA. So what else for narrative persuasion and audience engagement from your studies would you want to share that we should load on the cassette as writers? Okay, I think one very important thing is to decide what is the meaning that you want to leave to your readers. Many stories are just pure escapism, and that's fine. Uh, you just want your readers to join that adventure and have fun, and uh, and that's great. But as we grow older, when your audience becomes more sophisticated, you want they want to acquire meaning in addition to uh, to just escape with a story. So when when you start a, a story, uh, you just stare at the blank page and you don't know where you're going to go. But if you decide how you want to change your reader, what you want them to think now, uh, what is your ultimate message, what, will, what you want to leave them with at the end of your story, then that provides you with direction. Okay, I don't know how I'm going to get there but I know that I want to get to that point. And my point uh, was to tell them what is what is life like for this last generation of uh, uh, gay guys for whom it didn't get better. Uh, it was like my response to toxic positivity. Like sometimes you see the gay world and it's fantastic, wonderful rainbows and people of all colors being together, but only if you have fantastic abs and are, and you are skinny and beautiful. Otherwise, you're not going to be shown on the magazines or TV. So, yeah, I want to, uh, that's not all that, that there is. And, uh, and there's a lot of anger and resentment that lingers, even if you don't want to be that person. There's a joke that I, I, I absolutely uh, love because it's so real. Uh, it says, uh, hell has no fury like a gay man is slightly inconvenienced. And uh, it's funny because you see these gay guys that may be perfectly rational in their general life, but they're slightly inconvenienced by something that they get furious and they go fade on away in uh, mommy dearest because of one little thing. Uh, <laughs> and uh and it's true because there's still a lot of anger and resentment and uh, that lingers. And you, want, you, you don't want it to be part of you, but it's part of you. And uh, so, that, so I want, that, that, was my, that was my message. I wanted to talk about that anger, about that resentment, and what, what it feels like to be gay and trying to hide uh, your shame. One one thing that, uh, that inspired the novel was when I was a teenager, I used to have this dream where uh, I would wake up, uh, well, I, I would dream that I had killed somebody and that I had to get rid of the body. And I didn't know who I had killed or why. I just knew that I had to get rid of the body. And I would wake up uh, thinking that I had killed someone and it was a horrible uh, feeling. And I was like trying to remember who I had killed. And I was convinced that I had repressed memories and it was a recurring dream. And um, I mean, it was not traumatic, but it was uh, upsetting. And eventually I realized that the corpse represented my shame of being gay, uh, the guilt that I felt. It's not deserved. You shouldn't fee, uh, feel guilty if you're gay, but society told you that you should. And that's how we grew up. So I wanted to make the reader feel that, what it feels like to have a body that you have to hide and get rid of and uh, 
make readers feel that shame, make readers understand that anger, but not make it in a bitter, preachy way. So that's why it is a comedy, because I'm going to reward you for your attention. You're going to learn all this, but you're going to have fun learning all this. The point of all this is it gives you direction. Once you decide what you want to leave your readers with, it's very easy to write your novel because you limited yourself. It's like going to the supermarket with a list that specifies the brands. It's very easy and uh, man, things come more naturally. The world, uh, the words come out, the, you, you build a world around them, the characters you need just pop up. So, so that's, that's my first advice. Decide what it is, what you're going to tell you, uh, what you're going to, how you're going to change the life of your reader. And that's going to be your ultimate goal. And that's going to provide you direction. And you said just now that putting into that cassette is what you want the readers to to walk away with and that it's fine entertainment. But as people get older, they want something more out of the story. And I thought that that was an interesting thing for you to say, because I think what I picked on earlier was that your reading experience was actually the reverse, that you started reading adult novels when you were a child and then read children's novels when you were a, an adult and read children's books when you were an adult. And so I'm wondering if for you as a child reading adult books, if in, if in fact you did, if you think that really influenced you because you were reading kind of above your not what you could handle, but what was written uh-huh. for you. I guess it was more realistic. I love realism. Uh, one of my uh, favorite writers is Balzac, and he is melodramatic, but he his characters are very real, and he doesn't... I mean, sometimes he, he wrote some mild fantasies, I would put it that way, but... Uh, Overall, he, he's, he's stuck to reality of uh, trying to document what was going on in France. And uh, children uh, books tend to be all about fantasy, all about creating impossible heroes and impossible scenarios and making you feel good. But that's not what real life is like. And adult novels uh, tend to paint a, a gloomier version of life, but uh, it's, it's more similar to what real life is. So, yeah, I learned from that that uh, that I preferred uh, realism over over fantasy. I mean, to this date, uh, I think if you write fantasy, it's my personal opinion. It has to be somehow of a farce. Like all of this is not true. So it's uh, tongue in cheek and uh, and you have to uh, to make it like an allegory for something else. Don't take it too seriously, but uh, that that's that's my uh, personal approach to fantasy. But uh, I, I uh, children books, what you could get from them uh, is that the language is very, very, very clear because of course you're writing to for to people that uh, that take uh, the meaning literally and that cannot be confused. So uh, there's. Something to learn from children's books is how to write with clarity and simplicity. Yeah, I just think that that, there's something interesting about your development if, you know, you only had adult books that you were reading Uh at a very young age or maybe an age that was too young, how that really affected how you saw the world or if it, like, catalyzed something in you. Yeah, I mean, the first 
book that I ever read, the complete first book, was Anna Frank's Diary. And of course, I didn't understand half of it. I was seven. But I thought she is uh, funny and she uh, is cheery. It is a dark subject, but it's not a dark uh, book. I have read it uh, a couple of times afterwards. And uh, you feel good about uh, spending time with with, with Anna. And uh, regardless of her situation, she has a very positive view of the world. She's a teenager. She's a little bit overdramatic sometimes and complains about others. But it's a hopeful uh, book. It was nice. And then my mother loved historical drama. And uh, she had all the books written by uh, uh, Victoria Holt, uh, who wrote in several uh, with several uh, pen names, uh, Jean Plady and Philippa Carr, and it was all about English history. So I learned all uh, about uh, English history when I was a kid, and uh, and that influenced me. And eventually, I discovered the classics, and uh, I read almost the the whole human comedy and uh, Victor Hugo, of course. And I just love how over the top they can be, but at the same time, elegant and uh, smart and uh, enjoyable. Did you grow up in a city? Yes. Uh, well, I spent the first 10 years of my life in Mexico City, in the suburbs. Then we moved to La Paz, which is a rather a very small city in the Baja Peninsula, very isolated. And uh, I mean, the closest cities, Cabo San Lucas, is like two hours away. I mean, there are a few towns in between, but... but uh, but it was very, very, very isolated, and it's the desert. So it was, uh, it was. Uh, I guess that added to my feelings of isolation. Growing up there, I felt like a foreigner, coming from the city there. Why? Why did your family move there? Because my mother uh, had grown up there. She wasn't from there either, but she moved there when she was ten, and and then she moved to Mexico City when she got married. So my parents got divorced. We went back to La Paz. Yeah, I think that influenced my, I was always like a foreigner there. I have been a foreigner all of my life. From the moment I moved there, yeah, it is the same country, but uh, everyone else made it clear that one, <laughs> wasn't welcome, two, you're different from us. And uh, so it's, it's, it was, I will say scary, but sad. Uh, so they called uh, Mexico people from Mexico City Chilango. It's a nickname, which is fine. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't offend me. It's like uh, Americans are called gringos in Mexico. It's not an offensive name. But you will walk out down the streets and say like, uh, uh, "Be a patriot, uh, kill a Chilango." Like basically, that's what things. Uh, uh, and there's a re there was at least back then in the 80s a real hate for people coming from Mexico City, like me. And I was beaten up just for being from Mexico City. So uh, not too bad, but uh, but yeah, uh, I guess that defined me of who I am as a person. And uh, I, I adopted that identity of being the foreigner. I'm an immigrant here, but I'm. I'm fine. I don't have those feelings of isolation that some people feel because they feel like, oh, I'm never accepted or stuff. Because I have lived in, in several countries and it was nice to uh, be always a novelty. So it cannot be as bad as it was growing up in the past. Maybe that contributed, though, to your your dreams of having killed someone. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, maybe. And uh, and uh, so uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie was inspired by a friend who's from the South. Uh, my friend is from Tennessee. I moved uh, Charlie from Kentucky, but pretty much Litchfield is an allegory of La Paz. Uh, retrograde. Uh, I mean, it's a nice city and uh, I personally don't like it. A lot of people love it. I had a bad experience. I, it's nice. My family lives there. I, I go uh, sometimes. But to me, it means backwardness and rednecks and horrible people, which is not true because the city is much more than that. <laughs> but that's that's how it makes me feel. Uh, I hope I'm not offending anyone from, from there. You know, I find that with a lot of writers that in some way they felt like outcasts, whether they were sick as children or only children or had experiences like you. I think yeah. that um, can contribute to being um, a more observant human. Yes. Yeah. It also helps you like you become an observer. Can you share a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? This is from Cousin Ponds, one of the my favorite novels. So Cousin Ponds is about also a, a gay couple, although it is not explicitly said that they're gay, but uh, I mean, it's pretty much implied. And uh, one of them is an art collector and he has all these art pieces and they live in poverty and they have this, the concierge who takes care of them and she discovers that they have a lot of money that she didn't know because of all that art collection that if they sell it could be worth a lot of money. So this is uh, uh, Madame Cibos, the concierge response after she learns how rich uh, Cousin Ponce is. Madame Cibos' head was swimming. She wheeled round. In a moment came the thought that she would have a legacy. She would sleep sound on old Ponce's wheel like the other servant mistresses whose annuities had aroused such envy in the Marais. Her thoughts flew to some commune in the neighborhood of Paris. She saw herself strutting proudly about her house in the country, looking after her garden and poultry yard, ending her days served like a queen, along with her poor dear Cibot, who deserved such good fortune like all angelic creatures whom nobody knows nor appreciates. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? Uh, because it's a novel where it becomes, a, it's a tragic comedy about people fighting for money. And uh, Pons eventually dies and everybody rushes trying to get his art collection because it's worth a lot of money. So there's, Madame Cibot, and then there's a guy that also is an art collector trying to get that, and the relatives of Pons, and they're all so greedy and fighting, and it's kind of disgusting, but at the same time so funny of how these people feel, and Balzac shares with us how, how they feel, and you love Madame Cibot, even if she's so greedy, and uh, and all she wants is the money, because she's also a, she's a nice, warming person, but she she gets driven nuts by her own uh, greediness. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, this one, when I introduce a chapter, uh, when I introduce Anthony, first he was a woman, 
he didn't have a personality. Then he was a guy, then back a woman, then back a guy until I realized, okay, now I know who he is. And uh, he's based on, on an actual person. So he's a beautiful uh, guy in his late 30s, perhaps. So he's talking about, about uh, his operations. So he's talking about his boyfriend that he calls a she. He says, oh, she's upstairs. She's in so much pain, my, dur- my poor doggy. She got pec implants four days ago, and it hurts a lot. Anthony rolls his eyes. I got mine last year. He opens his hoodie. Can you tell that they're fake? I would have never known. This is Jignesh. The nose is uh, new to from three months ago, third operation, still not happy. I wanted it redone on this trip, but the doctor said it's too early. I'm definitely coming back in the fall. He then removes his hoodie and points at his biceps. Fake too, can you tell? I shake my head. Fake, he continues, pulling his pants to show me his calves. He points at his behind, then at his left chin, then at his eyes. Fake, 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 fake. I only go to the gym to run on the treadmill. I didn't want to take steroids because of the pimples. The abs are real though. Do you want to touch them? (laughs) So (laughs) he's all fake, but he's beautiful. And he's so proud of of his operations and what he has done to become uh, beautiful. And uh, I was inspired by a a guest that I never uh, knew in person, but who came to LA to have an operation. And he told me over the phone, all about his operations. And I was like, eventually I remember when I was trying to create Anthony, I was like, that's my character. So that's what I have. And I was afraid at the beginning that it would be a little bit too over the top to be, to feel real. But uh, I mean, I don't know what readers uh, think about Anthony, uh, but uh, it just clicked. It just became real. That's who Anthony is. Where do you write? I write in here in my office. Um, this is it. This is where I work as well. So I, I probably spent a good 10 hours every day in, in this room. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I uh, like to uh, go for long walks sometimes. Sometimes when I, when I don't know what I'm uh, going to be writing about, I write my story while I go for a long walk or, uh, I mean, it's such a cliche, of course, but, or a bike ride, or I go and do exercise in the park. And that's what I masticate my ideas and then come back and ride them. And uh, the weather is so nice here in LA. You can, you can walk every day. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, to my husband, but he doesn't want to read first draft. So he he has told me that he won't read uh, the first draft. He wants to read the second or later. How have you dealt with rejection? So what I've been doing is I've been saving all my rejections in a folder, and I just call them rejections, and I and put a lot. And I have all these fantasies of getting back at these people when I'm rich and famous. (laughs) I probably won't do it, but it makes you feel better. Like like writing a nasty email that you never uh, 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 send. I guess I have learned my lesson. Don't don't write nasty emails uh, and send them the same day. Wait for the second day and for a second reread. But uh, if I put them in that folder and I think a little bit of nasty, things about them that that makes me feel a little bit better and then I just continue and then I just forget about it 
and uh, that's life. And and uh, eventually you stop caring, I guess. That's part of what being a writer is. What is your favorite word? Uh, it's an Italian word, scaldacuore, uh, which literally means that it warms the heart. I guess the equivalent in English would be heartwarming. Uh, despite of what I write, I love uh, heartwarming stories. And uh, I, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, would, uh, it's, uh, it's an Italian novel called uh, Go Where the Heart Takes You, or something like that. I, I didn't read it in English. Um, it's, uh, it's a nice, heartwarming, heartbreaking story. So uh, uh, I remember when I learned that word was from a YouTuber describing a novel, and, and she was saying something that, I love these stories that make you feel bad, but at the same time, they warm your heart. And I love that feeling when I read a story. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. If you like today's show with Carlos Allende, author of the novel Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love, check out my interview with Patrick Ryan, author of The Dream Life of Astronauts. We talked about Florida as a strong presence in his book, the way theme comes out through writing rather than intentionally crafting it, and writing about one character at different stages of his life. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.